Hey, this is Sean from the Wasted Knowledge Podcast. Welcome to Episode 5 of Season 2, my one-on-one interview or drinking for two interview with Eddie Webb. Uh, I've had the chance to meet Eddie uh, several times in the past. We've hung out. I think it's the first time we got to drink together, maybe the second. Uh, but he's an amazing human being and a super, super nice person. And I was really glad that he decided to come on the show uh, about probably about a month, month and a half right before COVID hit. So it was it was percolating. But we managed to get this little conversation in. So this is the first half. Uh, We're going to talk about... Oh my gosh, I can't read my notes. (laughs) Uh, His favorite most important parts of narrative, uh, environments as characters, Star Wars as an epic fantasy. um, And we kind of go down a sci-fi hole. Uh, We talk about his biggest overestimation in writing uh, as far as his own talents and what he thought was amazing, what he was doing. Um, Yeah. James Bond as a Time Lord, and Hero Archetypes. Uh, we had a lot of fun chatting, so I hope you enjoy this first half of the interview. It was super long, took a lot of editing. Uh, and then we'll be right back after that with episode two. Probably within a day of this one airing, because it's quarantine times and we need entertainment. So enjoy, sit back, relax, and cheers. Uh, my name is uh, Eddie Webb. Um, I am a full-time freelance uh, game designer and writer, um, which way as glamorous than it sounds. <laughs> um, but I've did, I spent uh, a lot of time working in uh, uh, video games. I was several years. I was a, a content designer for the uh, late lamented World Warcraft MMO that never got launched. Um, but before and after that, I've done a lot of work in the tabletop role-playing game space. I've done that for just about twenty years now. Um, next year will be by 20th year. Sorry, 2001. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I've been, I've, I'm old, um, <laughs> but I also do like you know fiction. I do some video game consulting work on the side, writing on the side. Um, I'm moving to other spaces, uh, like, yeah, like comic books and whatnot. So I mean, it's like it, it's kind of freelance gun briar kind of thing. But I mean, my, my bread and butter right now is in the tabletop role playing game space. So your job overall is, or say your job is your freelancer. But the work you choose to do, right, uh, all involves some sort of narrative design, writing. It's stories, yeah, really. Stories. I mean, I mean, there's 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 game design there too, obviously. Um, but I mean, really, it's game design and service or story. Okay. What? For someone that doesn't do that, that doesn't know that, what would be something important for them to understand about what you do? Either a creative process or a technical um, bit that you might not, maybe that you learned early on or that you've kind of honed to master that lets you keep being employed. It's like, oh yeah, you have to be able to do this thing. Uh, The one thing that took me a while to wrap my head around, um, and I'm glad I did now, I think, is that with a lot of art, um, it's it's really a conversation between you and the person who's viewing or reading the art. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I write a novel, say, I'm going to write the novel more or less how I want to. There might be an editor or a publisher who has some thoughts and opinions and whatnot, but just being I'm doing pretty much what I think the novel should be. Mm-hmm. And then the eventual uh, reader is going to consume it. And they're going to take away their own stuff from that. Mm-hmm. But really, it's a relatively passive experience. Um, if you and I read the same novel, we're going to have slightly different experiences to that, but we're still going to have a central text to be able to reference and more or less have a cohesive experience. Right. Um, with interactive fiction, with narrative design, I'm designing it one more removed than that. Is I'm giving, I'm not telling a whole story. I'm telling a wild 
variety of possibilities of stories, mm -hmm. and then the person who's taking that is then going to tell their own story with that. Right. And then eventually they're going to go on and talk to other people about the story they had with that. So it's going to be a two or three different moves there, and to a point where I have very little to say with what the experience you ultimately had is to a certain degree, because you're kind of shaping that in your own head. Right. I have some input on that. Mm -hmm. I, I have some some. I can, I can push you in one direction or another. Like, obviously, you're not going to have a, a hilarious experience in a deeply cathartic horror World War One kind of scenario. I mean, right. I can shape that to a certain degree, but it's not my story. Mm -hmm. It's our story. It's collaborative in a lot of ways. Do you find in that kind of setting that developing character takes on more importance? Saying like, "Hey, this is what this character is, and this is what they're like." That way people can have a more cohesive experience between characters and the story that they're creating? Um, yes and no. Um, it, it depends. Like, so for... That's like, going to be the most intelligent thing I ask you, by the way. <laughs> it gets all downhill from here? Yeah. <laughs> so, four words. No. <laughs> it's your favorite four-letter word. <laughs> fuck. It's definitely fuck. <laughs> it's so versatile. I mean, there's so much you can do with it. <laughs> it's an adjective. It's a noun. It's a verb. <laughs> it's so much. Um, but before we get to that, right. <laughs> um, character is a part of it, but I think um, environments actually ends up having a larger place oh. um, because with um, with a video game, for example, uh, there are certain strong character in video games. Uh, Uncharted is kind of my go-to example for that. Sure. Um, Phoenix Wright is another good example. These are ones where it's like <clears throat> you're playing a character, but that character is a strong aesthetic. Right. And you're kind of just pointing them in a vague direction. Um, there's occasionally you know, parts where you can kind of influence the story to a certain degree, but really that character is so strong and so iconic, they're kind of along for the ride. Right. Um, I find those are atypical. A lot more times, um, you either make your own character or a character is relatively fluid. Or even for like a tabletop game, people can explicitly make up completely unique characters. Right. So the, how the environment shapes those characters become actually much more prominent. Right. Um, uh, because I got my chops writing on games like Vampire the Masquerade, um, which have a very strong gothic element, um, gothic literature kind of shapes my thoughts on this. But really, if you look at gothic literature, that's kind of where you start to see, really see strong environments as character. It's the crumbling castle and... Um, how that slowly causes the characters to rising dread in their minds and how they slowly start to become twisted and turned and quote-unquote go insane as a result of these otherworldly, desolate environments. Mm -hmm. um, and that guys got me really started thinking about how the environment does kind of shape the, the, the flow and the ebb of the story. Mm -hmm. um, playing a character in a homey, Dublin-inspired bar, for example as a random example, right, is going to be very different from being the exact same person in a sterile corporate environment with lots of glass and steel and hardwood. Right. You know? Um, and a science fiction character is going to just fundamentally act differently than a fantasy character. Um, okay. So, for example, I mean, if you look at Star Wars, for example, my argument has always been that Star Wars ultimately is a fantasy with science fiction trappings. It's not a science fiction story. Because okay. if you yeah. look at the way characters act, the way they're shaped, they act in fantasy ways. Mm -hmm. The tropes are fantasy tropes. Um, they just the sword is a laser opposed to magic. It's a big difference, right? Um, uh, uh. And so Star Wars characters are shaped by that mm. 
fantasy-styled environments. Um, whereas a similar character in different environments. Like, you know, the, the poor farmer boy that has a destiny that grows up to become an important magical wizard. That's straight up fantasy. Sorry, I thought we were going to say to be a Starfleet captain. Right. Like, yes! <laughs> but that's the thing, is that um, a young farm boy who grows up to be a Starfleet captain is a very different character than the young farm boy who grows up to be the Flash Jedi. Right. Um, yeah. Even though they're quote, both science fiction, quote unquote, right. Star Trek shapes Kirk's environment in a very different way than Starwalker's environment. They're both leaders, mm-hmm. both young characters. Mm-hmm. You know, they're both ambitious, break the rules. Right. Kind of like, boy complex. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they're very different characters. Yeah. Because a, a Starfleet ship is a team environment. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, at the end of the day, as much as Kirk goes off and bangs chicks and punches people, he's accountable to his team. Um, and it's responsible for his team. Mm-hmm. And that makes him make different decisions and different wings than Luke Skywalker, who's still, even though he's part of the rebellion, he's still pretty much on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, he has his friends, and they do things together, and he cares about his friends, but he's not responsible for them the same way that Kirk is. You know, uh, uh, the relationship between uh, <clears throat> Skywalker and Han Solo is different from Kirk and Spock. Oh, wow. Yeah. I... So, it, yeah. it, but I think if you put Kirk, character Kirk and Spock into, or even like a better analog would be like, say, um, C-3PO. If you put Spock and C-3PO and switch their environments, okay, yeah. they become very different characters. Mm-hmm. Spock doesn't really work in any Star Wars environment because his cold, logical, conservative approach is at odds with Star Wars' environment. Mm-hmm. C-3PO's antsy, scared, timid approach would not work in the aggressive Starfleet environment. Uh, so, the, the, the characters have to either adapt to the environments or they would be phased out because they would no longer be used for characters. So, when you talk about interactive fiction, you have to think about the environment a lot more because that's the kind of forces you're thinking about. Right. So, between the two, I feel like Spock would be better able to adapt than C-3PO. No, I agree. <laughs> I feel like Spock could make that work. Particularly if you go into, like, um, J.J. Abrams' bitter, angry Spock. <laughs> he would be really good in Star Wars. Yeah, I agree. But, like, if C-3PO and Data were on the same ship, it would just be bad. <laughs> Data would... You know, you would either, like, adopt C-3PO as a pet... <laughs> I think, or or, or term novel parts. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like this is totally useless. Like for him, I think it'd be like us looking at like a small rat that we evolved from like fifty billion years ago. And like, eh, this is useless. Right. It's Why like do a, we have this? It's kind of cute, right. but we have other shit to do. Right. It's like a robo puppy. Right. right. <laughs> it can transcend. Battlestar Galactica. No, Buck Rogers. Buck Rogers. Buck Rogers. Yes. I said, one of those 70s sci-fi shows. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Has nothing to do with anything, but I still have a DVD box set of the original V, the series. Oh, really? I love that stuff. Like, Does it age well? No. <laughs> it's aged well if you like drinking games. <laughs> or 
I mean, if you just like campy sci-fi, essentially, because that's Which really, I do, that's really, to be really fair. all as it comes out. But it's still, if you try to at least look at it from the gleam of this is the best they can do at that point in time, and they're still telling an epic saga. Yeah. The ability for mankind to withstand and to endure. Right. And also, just it's it's inevitable foibles when it comes to overestimating itself. They're like, oh yeah, we like, no, no, we're doing fine. Like, no, you're not. Right. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's really, it's that over and over. Like, yeah, you're doing great. Look, look at you. My, oh my God, you su- you survived the initial invasion. Did you know there's lizards in your camp? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's just that, this, I, I love it because it, it just continually points out like, hey, as soon as you feel confident, you're probably wrong. Right. And those things, I, I, I've always been gravitating. I've always been gravitating? I've always gravitated to... Um, Physics would say, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm gravity. I'm, gravi- I'm gravitating to the ground right now. I have mass. I have mass, turns out. Um, no, I, uh, um, I like science fiction or, well, any media, really science fiction with a message. Mm-hmm. Like, I still unabashedly love uh, classic Doctor Who. Okay, yeah. Particularly, like, Tom Baker era Doctor Who. Um, because Tom Baker era Doctor Who just did not give a fuck. It's just like, hey, you know, like, feminist cool. We're going to have a feminist character who's going to talk about feminism all the goddamn time, you know? Just accept it. Um, hey, that guy's a dictator, so we're just going to overthrow him because I'm bored. And he's an asshole. Um, and the, the special effects are absolutely terrible, and some of the lines are just awful. You know, it is objectively not quality television. But I still love it unreasonably because it tries so hard. And I think it's something similar to V is like, V was ambitious. It yeah. missed more than it hit. Sure. But yes. it had a story to tell him, by God, I was going to tell it. Do you have a full of shit moment that you, that you, oh. remember, that you can think of off the top of your head? Oh, yeah. Um, so um, I was working on Vampire the Masquerade, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I've had a long and complicated history with alcohol. Um, uh, my family, uh, Irish American, um, we grew up in Cleveland, strong Irish town. Uh, alcohol, I'm very comfortable around alcohol. Uh, and yet, three of my family members have died from alcohol. Uh, so, when I started working at Vampire, it's like, I'm going to make this an allegory about alcoholism. It's like, okay, I want to, I have to drink this thing. Yeah. I know it's hurting me, but I still have to do it. And so I was working on this one piece, and it's like it's gonna be a really cool and compelling thing, and it draws connections about what it's like to thirst after something that you know is hurting you so badly, and blah 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 blah. And so I wrote this amazing thing, and I sent it to my creative director, and I was like, "This is this is amazing." Look at it, and it's like, "So you don't like alcoholism, huh?" And I'm like, "How did you get that?" And he's like, "Well, it's pretty obvious, considering you've mentioned it like seven times." And he's like, the word ham-fisted comes to mind. And I'm like, oh, yeah. So, I mean, um, and we had a long talk about it. Uh, and he helped me understand it's like the best way to kind of do those things is to have them in your mind, but don't put them on the page, right? Um, follow the instincts and the, the images and the, the flavor of the text, okay. but don't be like, it's about drinking, asshole, you know? <laughs> so is that more of like never say the thing it's about or is it don't even use the direct analogy just a pair back really yeah. um, 
sometimes it's valuable to make the connection, especially if it's too opaque. Sometimes you have to kind of see it along. Again, I grew up in an Irish American family, um, so we had a very kind of jovial, jovial ribbing kind of relationship. Um, and I found that other people was like, oh, you don't appreciate that. Let me scale that back a bit, you know? Um, and then once people get to know me, they, they realize that what I'm doing in my intent is. But then I moved to Ireland and just random strangers would do it. And I'm just like, oh my God, I'm home, you know? <laughs> like, um, uh, we had a guy uh, come up to us for um, um, uh, charity donations. He came, came at the door, knocked on the door, mm-hmm. asked for charity donations. Got like a 15 minute conversation with him. Uh, because he heard our accents, and I was like, "Oh, are you from Canada or from somewhere else? I'm more unfortunate." And I'm just like, "Oh, okay. <laughs> this is how this is gonna go." <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it was just 15 minutes to make about a Trump. So I mean, that yeah, was pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm home. <laughs> oh, man. I. Oh, it's nice. So, the, one of the first times, uh, actually, you're afraid. I was about to say the first time we went overseas, which is not accurate, but as a young adult mm-hmm. where I started to have an opinion on things and, right. and, and maybe had a choice about where I was going overseas. Uh, I was 19 and I went to Italy to visit my brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, while, while Bush was in office. And this is just like another example of humor and then like people from different cultures like kind of syncing up after a moment and, right. I, and, I, and I loved it. It's crude, but I'm just going to say it anyway. <laughs> I was out drinking one night right. with my brother. We were out in a pub, underground pub. I don't even know exactly how we got around town. I remember being on the back of a moped at one point <laughs> and then being asked not to hold on to that guy so hard anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I was scared. To like people going, oh, I was in, crammed in a car. He's like, oh, you're from America. Yeah. Like, oh, you have you have Bush. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's president. Like, do you like Bush? I'm like, <laughs> I feel like I know this is going. <laughs> I kind of want to say yes, kind of want to say no. <laughs> and they like looked at me and it was like a long, hard moment. I was like, where I'm from, and like you can see, I started to explain it, right? And there's like, ah, oh, you, <laughs> the president. Like, oh, in that case. Oh, in that case, no, no, fuck no. I might not be phrasing this correctly, but are there universal details that you think like ninety percent of the population on the planet like connect to, like having a? Parent? Oh, sure. I mean, um, stuff like uh, uh, people. Most everyone knows what it's like when someone dies. Most everyone knows what it's like to fall in love. Right. Um, there are certain kind of emotional responses, physical responses that you kind of put out there and go, oh, okay, I, I recognize that. Right. Um, those are usually the easiest to land. Um, uh, a lot of times when people get hung up on things like, they talk about canon, say, or, um, or continuity. Right. What they're really talking about is, does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so full disclosure, I think canon is bullshit. I am a Sherlock Holmes fan. And if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, you realize that Colonel Cronin Doyle did not know what the fuck he was doing from story to story. And the idea of a connected continuity that all makes sense is largely bunk. <laughs> so I come from the idea of the idea that every story is lined up and perfectly work together in a very, like, in the past 20 years kind of modern invention. That being said, a lot of times they talk about you know, well, this isn't canon or this doesn't line up right. What they're really saying is this character feels inauthentic. And authenticity, I think, is the big piece of it. Um, you can write about space wizards, you can write about, you know, alcoholic robots, you can write whatever you want to. As long as that character feels consistent and authentic in every approach, right. then people will connect to it. And, and, and people who are fans of it will find themselves in the new version of it. That's one thing we worked on um, 
the Futurama game, uh, again, we had access to one of the original writers. A lot of his notes were not like, well, his character worked this way. A lot of times he was like, I don't remember what he wrote 20 years ago. You know, you probably know more than I do. Right. But um, he would be like, this is the heart of the character. Um, Fry is dumb, but well-meaning. You know, Bender is an alcoholic drunk. And you have to write him like that. You know, uh, as, as the obnoxious drunk in the bar. Um, you know, Leela is the straight man. She, you know, she, she, she just doesn't get the humor of the situation happening around her. And so the actual words you put in their mouths, it's good to get those right too, the tone and the flavor of it. But really, if you get the character down, the occasional misstep in what the lines are or whatever can be forgiven if the character feels authentic, feels accurate, feels like a person. Um, and what defines personhood kind of varies. Um, like uh, James Bond, that's a good example. James Bond is not a person. As a, he doesn't really have a deep drive, he doesn't have a character arc, he doesn't have complex feelings. Right. He murders people and makes funny jokes. It's really James Bond in a nutshell. Um, he's always slightly more clever and slightly more suave than you are. But the reason why we connect to him is because we want to be him. We want to be that guy that walks into the bar and says the clever thing at just the right moment to piss somebody off. We want to be the guy who, when we're being attacked, can do the right thing to make to save myself or to be in the right place to save the world. Um, and the reason why he feels authentic is because he's consistent. He always acts a certain way. He always does certain things a certain way. Right. And so that character feels like the same character, whether it's Sean Connery, whether it's Roger Moore, whether it's you know, Daniel Craig, whatever. The character feels authentic, even through different interpretations. The Doctor, for Doctor Who is a similar example. There's wildly different portrayals. Right. But there's still that core of, I am someone who is an alien, who cannot stand still, and who cannot stand injustice. Um, and so every interpretation of the Doctor has that core there that feels authentic. And some people have different versions of the Doctor, because like, those, those move, numbers move around. Same, people have their own favorite version of James Bond. Sure. But there's still a core character. So I never really thought of, of Doctor Who and James Bond in a similar light. Um, oh, James Bond is totally a Time Lord. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's I, I've had so many conversations about who would be... In present day, 2019 slash 2020, like, all right, right, so we've had, actually, I don't even know, eight-ish James Bonds, like, yeah. Uh, let me see. Pierce Brosnan, Daniel Craig, um, uh, Roger Moore, Sean Connery. Uh, I think it's like six. The two other guys I can't think of because they only did two or less. Oh, well, uh, there, there's a guy who did um, Animated Secret Service, which is just one movie. Right. And then there was Pierce Brosnan. And, and there's the other guy that was in the Hot Fuzz, and I can't think of his name. Uh, he was the uh, oh, director. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, or, no, sorry, he's the ghost store owner. Right, right, right. Uh, and I love him because he just shows up in random places. Like, hey, I'm in a movie. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> you don't care and I love you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm getting a paycheck. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> I appreciate that. But it, like, it suddenly turned to like, oh, my God, like, what if... Um, oh, oh, gosh. I, I, just, I just lost his name. Um... Oh, um, the, gate, the gatekeeper in um, in the Thor series. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, um, I just had his name and I lost it now. God damn it! Like literally, tall, dark, and handsome. Um, um, he's cockney. Uh, Isn't that terrible? Yeah, I know. 
<laughs> edit this out. Let's fumble for it. Yeah, we'll wait till we actually get to the. Oh, um, just realized I have a phone on me. Yeah, I'm looking up now. All right. As soon as I'm looking for it, I'll find it. But um, like you would make a James Bond. They were thinking about like female James Bonds. Right. And the fact that like it wasn't that much of a leap because because James Bond is as much of a an archetype. And Idris Elba. Way. Idris Elba. Oh my god. <laughs> but like, why would, did I remember? I forget his name. Oh. He would make a great James. Bond. No, he would. Idris Elba would be a fantastic James Bond. Yeah. I, there's. Uh, I, I don't I don't know her name, but uh, the lady that's uh, playing Wonder Woman, she would be a great James. Bond. Oh right, yeah. I mean, she's already portrayed a character that's a little bit larger than a lot larger than life and powerful. Right. Perfect. Right. Throw it there. And, and um, the funny part is, is actually weirdly, I am James Bond fans in this respect. Um, uh, Ian Fleming, when he first made the character, he chose James Bond because it was the most boring generic you could think of. Hmm. He didn't want to do like John Smith. But he wanted something that was very close to that. Right. The idea that anyone could be James Bond, and so like James Bond's like he got the name from like a guy who wrote like a bird watching book, you know, straight up in the most boring name you can think of. So the idea of James Bond, anyone could be James Bond, that James Bond is kind of generic name that we pick on, I think is great. And so like the idea that yeah, anyone could be James Bond, the idea that James Bond's not a person, James Bond is a mantle, right? I think would be a really cool reinvention of the concept. I think it should be absolutely it. But I mean, you know, if you want to reinvent, you know, um, reboot James Bonds, um, there are a lot of black people in England. So say, having a black James Bond is actually not at all a weird concept. I mean, and so let's say it gets rebooted because uh, Judy Dench was uh, 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 M for the, whole, for the last uh, at least few. Right. Yeah. If we were to twist it back and and, say, and either have a female or an African. American or black, I guess. Right, in I, black, yeah. Because you wouldn't say that in the UK. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, trying to be appropriate. Uh, but if you were to take that tack or that arc, mm -hmm. and then you could look at Judy Dench going, wait, so uh, actually, was no, she Bond at a previous point? Right, yeah. And I think her whole, at least with the Daniel Craig arc, her whole like kind of upsetness but also guidance with him even makes more sense. Because right. you're like, oh, yeah, no, I, I've been there. I, I understand what you're going through. Right. You're you're me in a sense, and I love you, and I want to take care of you. But at the same time, if you pick this up, right. I can't because I can't let you destroy this thing that I helped create. Right, exactly. I mean, and but I mean, again, I think it's the things that if you have the core of a character down, you can think about these reinventions right. and actually do cool stuff with them. Um, that's one of the reasons why this is going to be a really outlaw, but Transformers. Okay. Transformers have reinvented like a dozen times by now. Right? Mm -hmm. But Optimus Prime is still tied to the same character, no matter what. He's yeah. America's dad. Right. You know? <laughs> He's your robot dad that loves you, but also is very stern with you. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, so when you have those kind of core characters established, you can do some weird outre stuff with them mm -hmm. because it's, it's the... But the core is there. I, I recognize this character. I connect to this character. I understand what he's trying to do. I understand what she's trying to do, whatever. So I'm on board for anything else weird you want to do. Right. Um, that's one of the reasons why I think like uh, Chris Evans did a great job with reinventing Captain America. Yeah. Captain America is a very specific World War II character. Mm -hmm. um, it comes out of... America trying to come to terms with what its actual identity is in the 50s. Mm -hmm. It's a very specific, 60s, just like, a very specific time frame of what Captain America really is. But there's this core of the ideal of America versus the reality of America that's always been strong. Mm 
And I think Chris Evans did a great job of reinventing that for 21st century. Um, and really hitting down a character that's not cheesy American, that's not hyper-political, not hyper-patriotic, but still makes you feel like, yeah, I'm, I want to be that kind of American. I want to be that kind of guy. Right. Hey, you're still listening. I hope that means you loved the interview and uh, Eddie and I having a nice conversation. So please, 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 if you enjoyed it, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening to your podcast. Subscribe, give us a thumbs up, leave us a comment. We're on all of the social medias. So at Wasted K Podcast on uh, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Twitch, which we, well, we haven't even started using that yet, so don't worry about that, but uh, Wasted Knowledge Podcast at gmail.com if you want to drop us a line, if you want to be on the show. And, uh, yeah. Stay tuned. We'll have another episode coming out within the next 24 to 36 hours, depending on sleep. And, of course, as always, drink responsibly, and when you can, when things open again, always get a safe ride home. Cheers. <laughs>